just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving. With chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I'm chatting to Hannah Queenan about her diagnosis of type 1 diabetes as well as her experience of becoming a new mum. In this episode Hannah shares so openly about her diagnosis including the grieving process that comes along with that, how she felt starting insulin injections, how it works when you're pregnant with type 1 diabetes, the importance of a support group and Hannah talks us through the birth of her adorable baby James that didn't quite go to plan. I feel so honoured that Hannah chose me and That's So Chronic to share her story with today and I am so grateful our mutual friend was able to connect us. Welcome to That's So Chronic. Thank you so much for being on that so chronic today and so close to Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> we are recording this episode on Christmas Eve Eve here in New Zealand. Christmas Eve 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 for you <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> now you are living with type one diabetes and you have also just become a new mum to your adorable child James congratulations yes. thank you we will be talking a bit more about your pregnancy and mm-hmm. giving birth to James and being a new mum but before we start talking about all of that I thought it might be nice to jump all the way back to the beginning mm-hmm. and Talk about when diabetes entered your life. Like how yeah. old were you? When when did all of this happen for you? Yeah, there's a lot. I feel like I need to go back to when I was 10. I wasn't diagnosed at 10, but I was uh, diagnosed with Graves' disease, which is another autoimmune condition. Mm-hmm. And it's hyperthyroidism for those people that don't know. Many people don't know. Uh, a lot of people have hypothyroidism, but hyper is when your thyroid produces too much hormone And then basically everything in your body is regulated by your thyroid. Your body's kind of going crazy. I was diagnosed when I was 10. And then I actually went into remission when I was 17. And I haven't had it since. So I was like, yay. I've been seeing, you know, specialists from 10 to 17. The disease sucked. But, you know, you take a tablet and you change your levels. You go for some blood tests. There are some side effects of the the drug. But I don't want to discredit anyone who's going through that because it sucks. Yeah. But I, I sort of, now that I have type one, um, I feel like it sucks more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's just my own experience. Yeah. And I think also, and I, I remember I watched your, your podcast with the, I can't remember his name, but he has type one. He had it from the time he was two. Yes, yeah. And I do think you get used to things when you're little yeah. and you get used to it as you're normal. Um, okay. So 17, I felt free. I felt like, okay, I'm. I don't have any problems, any health problems. And then, okay, let me just do the math in my head. Math is not my strong suit. Uh, in 2016, 2015 and 2016, um, I graduated university. 
And I started getting these really weird sinus infections. Ah. And uh, yeah, it's super weird. And then also um, I had like an over overgrowth of candida. And I just couldn't figure it out. Like I was constantly taking, I was on antibiotics for these really bad sinus infections. And I didn't have a GP at the time because in Canada, we have a really bad shortage of GPs. I just graduated university. Mm. I saw a university doctor and then I was kind of in this weird limbo place. I just started working in an office job and I was maybe not taking care of myself the best, but something was definitely wrong. So yeah. my husband, uh, my now husband at the time, boyfriend, um, got me into his family doctor and she started running some tests in 2017. <laughs> Finally, two years after getting sinus infections, I found out I was pre-diabetic, ah. which is super early. So a lot of people will find out when they are um, close to close to being in a diabetic coma or have severe, like just, they're just not at the point. So I was fortunate in that way. I found out super early, but that also meant that I was like, it was like a ticking time bomb. Like, when am I going to have to start insulin? When, yeah. when is this going to change? And at the time, they didn't really know why, because I was really active, really fit, really healthy. They're like, how come you're getting diabetes when you're 24? But there is this type one and a half that people often call it. Mm-hmm. So where pe- more and more people are getting diabetes um, as an adult, it's actually an autoimmune disease yeah. rather than type two, which is an autoimmune. Okay, so I know that I'm talking really fast, but mm-hmm. let me see if I can go back and, <laughs> and break this down. After that happened, I actually went back and became a teacher. I was in my teaching degree at the time. And then in 2018, I finally saw an endocrinologist after a year okay. <laughs> and uh, was confirmed that I had type one uh, and they had to send away to California for a antibody test. Ah, okay. So yeah. That's and interesting <laughs> that they weren't a- that they can't do that in Canada. It goes to California. It is bizarre. Yeah. yeah it is strange. And we had to pay like $250 yeah. for that. But uh <laughs> I wanted to know, you know, for sure that it was type one rather than it being type two, because type two meant that I might not have to go on insulin. Type one, I knew at some point I was going on insulin. Yeah. And so when you then got the results that it was definitely type one diabetes, what was the treatment plan moving forward? Yeah, it was um, see you later until your blood sugar gets to be a certain point and then we'll put you on insulin. Wow. And did they like tell you how to check? your blood sugars like was there a process about or was it like when you suddenly get all these symptoms come back and see us Mm -hmm. sort of they yeah the endocrinologist wasn't too worried about me because she knew that I was monitoring myself with exercise and you know I was eating healthy but she did say you know when your blood sugar starts to stay in the double digits that's when we need to start insulin so for most people their blood sugar A1C, I don't, I don't know if all your listeners know what an A1C is, but for type one diabetics and diabetics in general, that's like our um, report card, how we're doing. (laughs) Most people's A1C doesn't go above 5.7. So that's the sort of sugar levels in their blood. I have to make sure I'm describing this correctly because I know diabetics who've had diabetes for their whole life will like be like, you are, do not know what you're talking about, (laughs) but I'm learning. Yeah, we're all (laughs) learning, definitely. uh, Exactly. (laughs) But, um, for me, uh, what was I going to say? My blood sugar was still pretty good. It was kind of between six and nine mm-hmm. most days for from 2018 to 2020. And in March 2020, I actually ended up in the hospital just when the pandemic was starting. Oh, um, no. And I started insulin then. 
Yeah. And so what were your symptoms at that time then to end up in hospital? I had really high ketones, which, you know, for people that are following a ketogenic diet is okay. But when you're diabetic, it can um, lead to diabetic keto acid. Uh, I'm not saying this right. Basically, you can end up, it's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. And so I had really high ketones and I was feeling terrible. I was super jittery. I was testing my blood sugar in the morning and it was consistently like 14 and wow. 15. Yeah. And that was without eating any carbs. And then it got up to 19 and I was like, okay, I need to check that I don't have any um, like internal organ um, damage. <laughs> yeah. So, and I also wasn't taking insulin and I was really, um, I was really depressed about the idea of taking insulin. Yeah. So I pushed it off for probably longer than I needed to. Mm-hmm which happens a lot to type ones who are diagnosed later in life. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you end up in hospital Mm -hmm. and is from that hospital admission when they decide that you will be starting insulin? Yeah, exactly. I actually went in wanting them to help me start insulin. That was my, that was my intention. And I had a friend of a friend who is type one has been type one most of her life. And she said, Hannah, you know, if you go to the hospital, they'll help you take, bring your blood sugar down. If you go to the GP, they'll just hand you an insulin pen and some insulin and they'll just say, here's what you do. So at first, yes, it was sort of drastic to go to the hospital, but I felt like I needed more support than my GP would be able to offer. Wow. And so then it all starts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a big adjustment. Yeah. What was the process? from that moment onwards then? Within that time frame, you know, um, only about, what was it? Six months after starting insulin, <laughs> I got pregnant. So oh. it was uh, combined with that. <laughs> that was two learning curves at the same time. I started on um, about 10 units of long acting insulin, just injecting it once a day and then eating kind of low carb. Prior to starting insulin, I'd been following a pretty low carb diet. Mm-hmm just because I, I was in denial and I didn't want to start insulin. So I was kind of, it's in some ways causing myself extra stress by like not eating very many carbs. And yeah. And then I was on just once a day injections, which is pretty common for people that are newly diagnosed with type one. Mm -hmm. And then when I got into my pregnancy, that's when I had to start multiple daily injections, which was a huge learning curve for me to go from not doing that to learning that while pregnant because pregnancy affects everybody's blood sugar even people that are not diabetic so yeah that was crazy learning curve like a full-time job for me yeah so before we chat more about pregnancy Mm -hmm. should we explain just in case somebody's listening and they have absolutely Mm -hmm. no idea what diabetes is what type 1 diabetes is what insulin even does in the body where it even needs to go would you be able to explain for us I guess what your definition Mm -hmm. of type one is. Okay. I feel nervous because as a new, I feel like I'm a new diabetic. (laughs) So I want to make sure I I accurately describe this. Uh, And those of you that are type one listening, I'm sorry if I missed something. Type one is an autoimmune condition. So essentially uh, my body is attacking my beta cells Mm -hmm. in my pancreas. So that means that I'm not producing um, insulin, which everyone needs insulin to be able to, um, function (laughs) to be able to eat carbohydrates especially right so if for me I if I have sugar when Jeff has sugar hopefully (laughs) your 
your body secretes insulin to help manage your blood sugar. So you don't go on this yo-yo ride of high blood sugar and low blood sugar. For me, my body doesn't do that. So uh, I have to inject insulin or people have insulin pumps. And insulin was, I guess, believe, was it a hundred years ago, almost exactly, it was discovered. Um, And previous to that, type one diabetes was a death sentence because (gasps) if you go too high, it's not good for your body. And if you go too low, well, previous to insulin, we actually, insulin injections, we couldn't go too low. So it's kind of like playing Russian roulette every day because injecting insulin means that you have to kind of act like a pancreas. And I don't have the intel that my pancreas does. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like that might, does that kind of accurately, is that enough? Yeah. Definitely makes sense. And it's definitely the same information that I got from diabetes.org.nz here in New Zealand from their website. So I think we're definitely on the right track. Okay. You mentioned that your friend was also type one. Mm -hmm. Did you know anybody else that was living with diabetes or was this a bit of a shock? Like, yeah, how was, Mm -hmm. how was your support network, I guess, during your diagnosis time? Yeah, I actually, that's part of the reason I really wanted to come on here because it wasn't great. I, I have, you know, wonderful friends and a wonderful partner and family but no one really knew anything about type 1 diabetes. And I didn't know anything about type 1 diabetes. And weirdly enough, Facebook became my friend. There's a young and type 1 diabetes group in my area. And I actually connected with uh, a couple of people from there uh, that are living with type 1. And then Instagram has been a great resource, building community. But yeah, it was really lonely and really overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something like type 1 diabetes, where a lot of people are diagnosed really young and Mm -hmm. that's kind of their normal and their reality and all they know. And I can only imagine that it it would be quite challenging to be diagnosed a bit later in life when you're becoming an adult and sort of navigating this world. And then, I mean, I know that that was like me when I was diagnosed. I mean, it's any diagnosis, really. Whenever it hits you, it can be quite difficult so yeah that's really interesting I'm glad that you were able to find some people to connect with yeah you're so right it is I wish I could say that I'm that I'm done grieving but I'm not like I I feel like it's a constant um a wave of grief where I remember what it was like to you know have Christmas dinner and not have to worry about trying to figure out carbohydrates or you know we can talk about this later but just like navigating you know, work and navigating family and having a baby yeah. and realizing you you can't not take care of yourself. Like you, yeah. in some ways it's a blessing because you have to prioritize yourself. But at the same time, it sucks because as you know, chronic illness doesn't take a day off. No, it just doesn't. <laughs> Especially not at Christmas no. when everybody else is taking time off. Exactly. they <laughs> <laughs> have definitely hit a nerve there. <laughs> yeah. I know my husband will, has been asking me, probably since I, the day I got diagnosed, you know, how can we reduce start your stress? What can I do? And, you know, I, I tend to be someone that does a lot of things. I'm doing my master's right now. Like I was working, I have a baby now, but I realized the one thing that takes the most out of me is diabetes. Like the other stuff feeds me. Yeah. Diabetes does not feed me. It's something that I have to learn yeah. to live with. <laughs> so what would be the extra considerations that you have to consider to manage your diabetes? on a day-to-day basis, I suppose. Yeah, it's 
it's constant. It's sort of like hypervigilance in a sense, because you have to be so um, aware of everything you put in your mouth, your body eating, Mm -hmm. how much water you drink, and the time between meals, when you're going to exercise, if you're going to exercise. And it can be kind of triggering. I dealt with an eating disorder when I was in high school, and I feel I don't have one now, but I definitely find the obsession with numbers to be very difficult yeah. and I'm, I'm getting through it. Yeah. But yeah, that, that is hard. Yeah. And you have to really think mathematically, which is not really my area. I have an English degree. I'm a teacher. I'm not a mathematician. Yeah. <laughs> you have to think, yeah, you have to think about all the variables that impact blood sugar and that can be stress, that can be sleep, that can be, I don't know what happened, but I ate the same thing yesterday. And for some reason I need different insulin yeah. today. It's very it's very confusing and destabilizing and it makes you really appreciate how do I put this makes you appreciate your body (laughs) for what it does (laughs) because there's lots of things going on that you don't realize. Yeah. I mean, probably a lot of people out there in the world would have no idea that we even have a pancreas. Exactly. (laughs) Like what it even is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, I was so ignorant before I was diagnosed, like I really was, and most people are. But the one silver lining is I feel like it's made me better able to connect with the couple of kids that I often have in the schools that I work at who have type one. And it's it's really sweet. They're like, oh, a a teacher, an adult has it. That's okay. (laughs) So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like starting to take insulin and having to inject yourself? Hmm. I, I think I might have cried the first few times. Yeah. Yeah. Being uh, a little bit vain, it is hard to get scar tissue all over your stomach yeah. <laughs> and realize, you know, that your body's changing. I now have a Dexcom that I wear on my stomach. Mm-hmm. I can show you. Um, that's like yeah. that I have to wear all the time that, you yeah. know, helps monitor my blood sugar. And yeah, you you get over it, but it is weird. In the beginning, I felt really self-conscious about it, but now I'm kind of like, okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> this is just what I have to do to survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is emotional. And my husband actually has a fear of needles he, <gasps> and blood. He's wow. passing out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he struggles so hard. Like, he'll just be, like, gritting his teeth. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll have a really bad, like, I'll, I'll inject and it hurts. Because if you inject scar tissue, it hurts really badly. Yeah. And he'll just be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I feel I feel bad for him. <laughs> Do you ever have a moment where you're like, and this is why I've been diagnosed with type one diabetes? If someone in our relationship had to get it, this is why I have it. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. He'll often tell me, Oh, you're so strong. And I'm like, you know what? We don't get to decide to be strong. I love him, but we just don't, right? <laughs> we have to will ourselves. You just find strength that you didn't know that you had right you do yeah you do it is weird like it is super weird and I know that those that have had diabetes their whole lives are probably used to it but for me just the other day we had painters come and paint our house and we had to go up to my in-laws and I'm thinking about what my baby needs and I you know I just didn't remember to bring test strips which for those of you that don't know like if my Dexcom which reads my blood sugars fails um then like I need test strips to poke my finger and figure out what my blood sugar is. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, we went for a walk and I left my phone 
at the house and then it's not pairing with the Bluetooth. And it's just like, then I had no idea what my blood sugar was. And, you know, I'm like, Oh, I just didn't do a good day. Good job of taking care of myself today. Like, and sometimes that happens, but I do beat myself up when that happens. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I need to be better. I need to be taking care of myself better, but it's hard, you know? Yeah. So it's a full-time job, really. It is. It is a full-time job. Yeah. And then the pregnancy piece of, you know, diabetes was also another full-time job. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, yeah, it was super hard. And I definitely wish that I had known someone who was pregnant or who had had a successful pregnancy before, because it was super daunting just hearing everybody tell me all of the risks. It was just totally overwhelming. Yeah. I did a Google search a few days ago and I typed in pregnancy and type one diabetes. And I was just throwing so much information. And mm-hmm. although it wasn't like necessarily overwhelmingly negative, the information that was like being yeah. thrown at me, there was definitely a lot of things mm-hmm. that if you did have type one and were wanting to become pregnant, would have to consider, especially in the beginning part of a pregnancy. Yeah. And I was feeling overwhelmed. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, yeah, how how did this whole process go for you, especially at the beginning? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I I have known I've wanted to be a mom for so long. Okay. And so it was never something that, you know, was – I just knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, and I guess – you know, we felt like, okay, there's never going to be a good time. There's never going to be a perfect time. And before you consider pregnancy, you actually, for type one, you need to make sure your A1C is, is as low as possible because okay. then the risk of miscarriage is the exact same as anyone else, right? Yeah. But if your blood sugars are disre- like not regulated or um, then it does become riskier. That, that being said, if someone's listening to this and they have a really high A1C, it is still possible to bring your A1C down when you're pregnant and don't listen to someone that tells you that this is like the worst thing ever. Okay. I don't want to go like, there's so much information that I want to share, but I want to make sure it makes sense. Um, I was actually thinking about it and I contacted my endocrinologist to see, is this something that, that I can think about seriously? And it turned out I was actually already pregnant. So that was hilarious (gasps) to me. Wow. So I wasn't expecting it to happen so quickly. Yeah. But I just, yeah, I mean, it, it was the time it was meant to happen. But yeah, that was in October of 20. Yeah, October of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I found out I was pregnant at the end of October 2020. And yeah, I didn't really know what I was in for. I think the hard thing was I told my GP, who's not an expert in diabetes, And she told me to not get my hopes up. And that was like the most devastating thing to hear when you tell one, like I told my husband and I hadn't told anyone else. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Don't tell someone that. (laughs) No. No. It's like such a stressful time as it is anyway. Exactly. Let alone to suddenly get that news. Oh, that's really stressful. Yeah. It was really hard. And I, I didn't know what was normal for diabetes in pregnancy because, you know, your mom or your, your aunt or your, you know, friends who've been pregnant, they might, you know, they have experiences, but type one diabetes in pregnancy looks a lot different. And yeah, I just had, I had no clue. It wasn't until I was about 23 weeks pregnant, I think, 
that I found type one diabetes and pregnancy, a group on Facebook. And that actually like changed my life because I realized all of the things that I was experiencing were normal (laughs) and it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But totally. And this is a whole thing, but just the stigma around and fear around pregnancy with type one is really high in the medical field. And that was really pervasive. Like, you know, I had to have uh, monthly ultrasounds, which is not common in, mm-hmm. for normal pregnancies. You just have one, but just because they want to check the growth of the baby, because oftentimes with type one sugars, high sugars can cause um, babies to grow faster. So they have to monitor growth really yeah. closely. But I had so many, you know, people in the healthcare industry, because I had constant appointments with endocrinologists, getting blood drawn, mm-hmm. everything. They would just tell me all the risks was like stillbirth and everything and it's like they're like you know it's really I'm like no shit I know that it's risky like and I'm also I got yeah. this I'm taking care of this <laughs> um so that was hard I, yeah. I would sometimes in the beginning I got better about it near the the end of my pregnancy but the beginning I just would leave my appointment sometimes just feeling really disheartened and anxious yeah disheartened and anxious would be a good way of putting it and that really sucks that that support wasn't there on a medical Mm -hmm. level like Mm -hmm. at your appointments like that's that must have been really hard yeah it's scary I don't know because I have not been pregnant but I can only imagine how scary it is being pregnant anyway let alone being told that you have these extra risks because your body is literally attacking itself for no reason yeah it was it was a lot and I I really struggled with my anxiety during that and I will say that my endocrinologist team that followed me was fantastic because they're experts in diabetes Nice. and they would often tell me they'd see. So I had like a maternal fetal medicine doctor who did a fetal echocardiogram at 20 weeks they have to do for diabetics. And she freaked me out. She freaked me out that my Graves disease was going to come back after pregnancy that, you know, there was a higher rate of stillbirth. But like my A1C was 5.3 through my whole pregnancy, which is better than some people that are not diabetic. But there's a lot of anxiety because it's only recently that we've had the technology for women to have safe births with type 1. So there's still some outdated um, information. And I think outdated information being taught at universities. But she scared me so much. And my endocrinologist the next week was like, yeah, I saw that you got really freaked out by that doctor. She yeah. shouldn't have said all those things, right? But I think they think it's their, they need to tell you, but they don't realize that you're working with a huge team of people that are all telling you, right? And yeah, yeah, it can, it can be pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have a plan for, in an ideal world, what giving birth would go like on the day? <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, we're both yoga teachers. I used to teach prenatal yoga actually for quite a few years and postnatal. And I did a lot of sort of learning around, you know, natural births. And I had a friend who had like three natural births. And I was like, oh, that's so amazing. You know, being at home, mm-hmm. home births, I should say, not natural births. And I knew that was off the table for me, yeah. being type one, being higher risk. And, you know, I learned though that with type one, typically you actually aren't allowed to get to term. So you have to be induced. Wow. Yeah. So any real hope I had of anything kind of went off the table and I just ended up focusing on, you know, I want a healthy baby. That was kind of what I was visualizing rather than worrying about 
the birth, but I definitely was not expecting the things to happen that happened. And I really wish I, in retrospect, learned that I can advocate for myself better. And the next time, should we choose to have another baby? And I want, I want to tell those people that are listening, like, you know, you need to advocate for yourself because no one knows your disease better than you do, especially when you're pregnant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was reading online on the website that I mentioned before, Mm diabetes.org.nz. And there's a line on their website under the tab talking about pregnancy that says that women with diabetes have a higher chance of needing a cesarean as well when they're giving birth. Mm -hmm. How did the birth go? What, what went down? Yeah. (laughs) Talk us through if you feel comfortable (laughs) telling us. Oh, I I will share. I feel like my husband and I still have some serious trauma around it. Like it's a lot. So as I mentioned, and I'm still learning, I'm learning more about this, but it's common that healthcare providers, OBGYNs and endocrinologists will want to induce type one diabetics around 38 weeks, okay. which is considered full term. Yeah. Is that because of the blood sugars and like the baby's growing faster? Sometimes. Okay. But the main reason is that there seems to be a correlation between uh, if you are insul- on insulin oh. and the fact that the placenta can age faster. So the oh. placenta gives nutrients to the baby. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, there seems to be a correlation, but I'm also, yeah, I do trust science, but at the same time, it's more of a safety precaution. Then yeah. you're not like nothing. They can't prove that the placenta is aging, but sometimes it will age faster. Yeah. And there's no way for them to know. So they just would prefer to be safe rather than sorry, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes women will go into birth naturally before 38 weeks, um, but a lot of diabetics will be induced. Sometimes it is for growth. So if you do have, but this is so tricky because some women just have big babies and they're not diabetic. So there's a lot of like blame that gets placed on type one diabetic moms for like, oh, your baby was big. How was your, but like actually- her A1C could have been totally fine. And she yeah. might've just, you know, be, a, they might just be large people. Like my husband and I are not large people. And yes, my A1C was good, but you know, our baby was seven pounds and like, I kid you not. One of the doctors when he was born was like, good job. He's not big. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a report card. Yeah. Um, but what did you, what did you ask me? I want to make sure I answer that. Okay. About the birth. Um, so you were induced? Yeah. I was induced at 38 weeks and I was really excited. I had heard, yes, there was a, there is a possibility of a C-section. I knew that, but my, my OBGYN had assured me that there's actually like a 25% chance for everyone to have a C-section. And so he was like, okay, but I feel pretty confident that this would be okay. So I was all geared up to go on, it was like June 21st and I was all geared up. I thought, okay you know, I'll go to the hospital, they'll start the induction. And then, you know, maybe the baby will be born in like one to two days. Didn't happen that way. Um, I mean, probably moms who are listening know that inductions, especially first time moms, it can take longer. And I was told that. And yeah, it was a laborious process. We were in and out of the hospital from Tuesday, because they actually called me on the Monday and said they were too full to take me. So I had to go and wait till the Tuesday. And so Tuesday morning, Wednesday, Thursday, we were like in and out of the hospital going for induction medication. So Mm -hmm. they will, they use gel to help soften the cervix 
and then hopefully you'll dilate. Yeah. I just wasn't dilating. Wow. And I was getting really bad back pain. And I told them I'm getting really bad back labor. Like it is so bad. Yeah. And they were like, okay, it just might mean the baby's position is a little funky. But you know, you have different nurses and different OBs each time you go in. So they don't, they're not, they, they read your chart, but they're not like invested in your, your whole process. I like to this day, I wish I had just asked them, can you do an ultrasound and check where baby is? Because this isn't feeling good because I was having such bad back labor. And then, um, on Thursday night we went in and usually they'll, you know, they'll give it two, three days of trying to induce someone. And then they might say, okay, you know, if you're not dilated enough, then they might, if you're dilated just enough, they'll break your water. So that's what happened to me. They broke my water. Um, I was only two centimeters dilated, not very much. Yeah. And then because they broke my water, they needed to do a different form of um, induction, which was put me on oxytocin. So I was on okay. a drip yeah. to help get me into labor. And that was Thursday night at 8 p.m. I was in labor all night. And then in the morning, I think I was six centimeters dilated. But what had started happening is the baby's heartbeat was dipping right. um, with each contraction. So they started to get a little bit concerned. It wasn't too bad. Um, the end, the OB was going to check in on me, um, I think at like 8am or something. Mm-hmm. And they said, Okay, we'll keep we'll, we'll bring down the oxytocin drip because the faster the oxytocin drip was IV, then the more contractions I was going to have and then the faster I would dilate and then the idea would be I would have a natural birth that way. Yeah. And that was what I was expecting did not want to be on oxytocin was hoping that there's something called Cervidil or um, there's another gel medication that that puts you into labor quite quickly for some women I was hoping that would happen to me I didn't want to yeah. be an, on an IV I wanted to be able to like you know bounce on a yoga ball like do different things during labor but yeah. I was basically I couldn't move yeah and baby was being monitored the entire time I had like everything on my tummy mm-hmm. and then what happened are you following? Am I talking to you? No, I'm definitely following. So then you're on the drip. You're, it's yeah. 8 a.m. And the, ob, the obstruction yeah. is coming back in. Mm-hmm. So he said, let's give it a couple more hours. If at 11 a.m. it's still like we can't up the amount of oxytocin, I think we need to call it. Okay. And I was like, okay. And I was preparing myself. Okay, that means I'm going to have a C-section. Mm-hmm. At that point, I was already so exhausted. Yeah. We had like since Tuesday I'd been sort of in labor yeah and yeah you just don't feel good the the induction medication does not feel good and I was also I had had an epidural which I also was planning not to have but you know yep these things um, happen (laughs) (laughs) uh, I had like a birth playlist and like didn't even use it yeah it was just there's too much going on But uh, I was prepared for the possibility of a C-section, but with COVID, like my husband wasn't able to come to any of the appointments. And so he was kind of in the dark. And I think that was extra hard for him because he just hadn't been part of the process with any of the doctors. And yeah, and, and, you know, he is afraid of blood and not afraid. He does faint. So he was like feeling anxious about that, trying to keep it together, worried about me, worried about the baby. Yeah. So his heart rate, our little guy was, his heart rate was still dipping. And then yeah, we kind of called it at 12. I had a midwife that was involved as well. And the midwife was sort of like, you know, we could probably keep trying, but we don't know. And like Luke, my husband and I were just thinking, 
you know, at this point we've come so far, we just want the baby to be healthy. Like we don't want to get to a point where, you know, if he's not breathing. Um, so yeah, they rushed us to the OR. He was born at 1225 by a C-section and he was fine, but the cord was around his neck three times and he was transverse. So the reason I was talking about back labor is the reason I was getting back labor is because he was transverse. He wasn't going to come out. Um, and they could have found that out way earlier. So that's yeah. why my feeling would be advocate for yourself because yeah, yeah like, you know, your body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's hard, especially when you're a first time mom, when you're like, mm-hmm. well, maybe this is what it feels like. Maybe this is what everyone goes through. But exactly. Yeah. That's interesting that you're, gut feeling was saying something is different something isn't quite right for me right now you know I tried to tell them I did tell them I vocalized yeah. it but I'm realizing sometimes you have to get loud when it comes yeah. to these kinds of things <laughs> yeah 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 it's it is weird and you're in a vulnerable position when you're you're pregnant and you know you're kind of treated a little bit like a glass when you're type one and pregnant and also like a VIP, like they're afraid, but they also yeah. prioritize you. So it's this really weird thing. Yeah. As you probably know, being, you know, everyone's <laughs> extra careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was also reading that when people with diabetes are giving birth, sometimes you might be hooked up to an IV for insulin mm-hmm. and also with glucose. Yeah. Was that yeah. something that happened for you? So it's a really, um, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a really personal and individual choice. Okay. But it also depends on sometimes the nurses will push it on you or the doctor will push it on you. I had really wanted to manage my diabetes on my own because I talked to my endocrinologist and she gave me instructions on how, you know, birth often affects. Sometimes it can make you go high because of the adrenaline and yeah. sometimes it can make you go low. And my husband has my Dexcom app, which he can see my blood sugars in real time. Mm-hmm. So we were just, we were doing that until the C-section. So they wouldn't let me not be on a glucose strip during the C-section okay. because they, they were worried if I did go low, like they needed me to have sugar. Yeah. I was kind of annoyed by that because I had like perfect blood sugars through everything. And then I went super high during the C-section oh. <laughs> because I was just on a glucose strip. Yeah. But yeah, it is really personal. I know a lot of moms from reading a bunch of Facebook posts about pregnancy and diabetes, they will choose to manage their own because we do become an expert on our disease. And yeah. sometimes people that don't know about it will just, pump the sugar because they're afraid but then they've got to pump the insulin and then it's this yo-yo ride for for everybody and no one feels good yeah I was nervous about that but it ended up being totally fine you're not really eating during your contractions (laughs) but the weird thing is you kind of also you're burning a lot of energy so you do have to be paying attention to like okay I don't want to be going too low yeah yeah that is a good question once James was born, you wrote on Instagram on a mm-hmm. on a post for was it World Diabetes Day that mm-hmm. he did spend some time in the NICU with yeah. low blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you feel about all of that? Oh my gosh, I feel like it was the hardest thing that I've ever gone through, and yeah. I have so much respect for moms that have their babies in the NICU. We call it the NICU here. Um, I think we do for, here as well. 
extended periods of time I just it was the hardest thing I yeah yeah the c-section was fine like okay it sucked but having separation with him uh, yeah it was it was really hard and I feel feel like words are escaping me here yeah it was it was very emotional I was expecting him to have low blood sugar because that's extremely common for type 1 moms um, just because we've been pumping them with insulin, they get used to insulin. And I mean, I'm not a doctor, but from what I understand, it takes them a little bit of time once they get out to acclimatize and kickstart their own pancreas. Yeah. So it's very much expected. However, the hospital we were in, and I, I would not go back to this hospital, they actually, they don't have enough resources to keep the moms and babies together, even though this isn't really something they need to send the baby to the NICU for. Right. Um, in other hospitals, they'll put you in like a shared room with the baby and they'll just monitor the sugars. He had um, three low-ish blood sugars. And then the nurse came to us and said, we actually don't have the staff right now to keep you with him. So we have to take him to the NICU. So it wasn't, yeah, I, I just feel wow. like it could have been avoided. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'll know what to do next time. I'll know to say, you know what, we can handle this. We, we've done this before. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really think that it was sort of so many things happening. You know, I was actually still recovering from major surgery and I had no idea what was happening. Yeah. And I was drugged up and we just were so confused. But yeah, I think it is really important that that I guess people are educated about type one, like especially maternity nurses and NICU nurses, because I just felt like there was a little bit of fear around me and anxiety and they would constantly come and check on me. And I had a couple friends have a C-section around the same time and they said they were allowed to take their pain medication on their own, like Tylenol. But I was like, watch taking my pain medication. Interesting. Yeah, which is bizarre because I take medication every day, right? But yeah. I somehow manage. I don't know. Anyways, I don't want to beat up the healthcare system. There was a lot of great parts to it. Yeah. <laughs> it was also challenging. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What you've been through from the beginning of falling pregnant to being monitored mm -hmm. throughout the pregnancy and then giving birth to your beautiful boy, yeah. the whole process from like what I've heard from you talking, like it's quite mm -hmm. a lot what you've been through. Yeah. And I'm wondering what your support has been like, especially now being a new mum and having just mm -hmm. gone through all of this. What does the support system look like for you now? Yeah. I feel like, you know, you asking me that question, I feel like it could be better. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I could be better for about asking for help. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to ask for help. Yeah. And I think during pregnancy it was really really difficult. But then you know afterwards it was also difficult because we had a bit of a rough start with breastfeeding and things yeah. were just challenging. I was recovering and I was kind of grieving all of the things that went differently than what I was expecting. <sighs> hmm, support. I have to say that like my husband is is my biggest support and yeah. I I'm so grateful for him. He works from home right now and that's made a huge difference. But I think being gentle with myself is probably what I'm trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> and 
and it being okay if I'm not 100% present when I'm taking care of my diabetes with James, like giving myself some space to be human, Mm -hmm. which is hard for me because I'm definitely a perfectionist. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I think my support system could always be better. But getting the opportunity to move every day is super important for diabetes management. So I do make a point to exercise every day. Yeah. And I have sort of, how do I put this? I have like low carb lunches because I know that if I, if I dose insulin and something happens <laughs> during the day, it's hard. Like I don't have support. Yeah. So I eat low carb always at lunch because my husband's working and it's just like yeah. too much to try and dose insulin during, during lunchtime. Mm-hmm. The one thing I do want to say, and maybe you're going to add this at the end is, I wish that before I'd gotten pregnant with type one, I wish people had focused on the stories of hope, like the stories yeah. of success with me more than the stories of, you know, the adverse things that can happen. Cause pregnancy is always full of risks, no matter who you are. Right. Yeah. And I wish that people had told me this is really maybe a benign thing to people that aren't type one, but that having ketones during pregnancy is really normal. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is that sometimes things will change every day for you with yeah. type one and pregnancy. And so every day you need to be adjusting and you're not a failure. If you have a bad day, you just, you got to adjust. Did you find that the Facebook group that you found was sharing positive stories or was that also sort of sharing a lot of the negatives the negative parts to it it's actually a quite a beautiful space it's full of like such supportive women and you know everyone will post their birth stories too and their photos of their babies and a lot of times you'll see like I'm still part of it you'll see women who are in their first trimester asking like you know I have a really high a1c does anyone have any positive stories of having babies with healthy babies with high A1Cs? Yeah. And then people will just leave like 40 people like messaging. Yeah. And there are, you know, people will post like, you know, trigger warning, like this might talk about miscarriage. Yeah. So people will just not, not go to that if they don't want to. But yeah. I would say it's actually the most beautiful Facebook group. And I highly recommend anyone who's pregnant all over the world with type one to join it. Yeah, um, perhaps we'll leave a yeah. link in the show notes or people can yeah. message That's So Chronic and I will make sure that they get the mm-hmm, link to mm-hmm. that Facebook group if they're going through a similar thing at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't matter where you are. There's moms from all over. Just normalizing it because your mom who doesn't have type 1, you know, my mom's experience was totally different than my experience. And yeah. it was just nice to know that, you know, it was hard and to have someone validate that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really liked when you wrote on your caption on Instagram that you don't say this for pity, but rather in hopes that a bit of my story can help normalize that having a baby mm-hmm. is not all bliss. It's hard for a lot of mm-hmm. us. That's normal. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey with us and everybody listening to this episode. Thank you. Thank you for providing a space where we can all learn. Yeah. Yeah. We are definitely all learning. And I hope you have a lovely Christmas and yeah, a new you year. Too. Thank you. Is James getting anything exciting for Christmas? 
We'll see. He was actually so enamored by the wrapping paper. So that's probably a gift in itself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I did get him two little gifts, but yeah, it was, it was pretty cute. Yeah. He's six months on Christmas day. So it's just incredible. And I'm, I just feel so lucky to like, I just feel so lucky to have a baby. It's just, you know, I I don't take it for granted. Amazing. I hope you have a wonderful holiday too. Thank you. It truly is such a pleasure to be bringing you these interviews from people all around the world and chatting to Hannah was no exception. If you need any more information or you would like to share your story, head to the show notes or send me a message over on Instagram. I'm at That's So Chronic. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to support the podcast, the best way to do that is by pressing follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, leaving a five-star review and sharing the episode with some someone that you think might enjoy it as well. That really helps That So Chronic get into more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and more importantly, hope. I'll see you next time. Well, I don't actually see you, but you know what I mean.